0: in the service, we're usually over in the um, cry slash nursing room. You're welcome to join us. Kind of. Not really. That's awkward. Um, But it's glad and honored to be here with you guys on a Wednesday night and be violating our son's early bedtime. Um, Make sure you guys have a Bible in your hands. We're going to be going through a lot of scriptures tonight. If you don't have one, there are some on the little stands in the back. Uh, If you do, Open with me to Hebrews 6. But before we get there, I want to ask you all a question. The old covenant, we know that God began with Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant saw God choose Israel as his people and he administered his presence. He said, you're my people. I'm going to be especially present on earth through you. And I'm going to administer my presence in you by this particular tribe of Israel's 12 sons, Levi. I'm going to have the priests administer the sacrifices and the offerings and the gifts. And they're going to be how you commune with me. But I'm going to have a rarefied system of communion. You're going to be either, you have to be a Levite to minister in the temple. You've got to be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest. And then your covering, your communion with me is only good for that one sacrifice, most recently done, that's been done in the sacrificial system. So the question is, for the Jews now, for us now, forget that you know about Jesus, because that's an obvious answer. How do you have communion with God? The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. What do you do? Pray. 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 Right? I read this fascinating quote from a book called The Fall Holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot by Paul Steinberg. It's a 2007 book. And is explaining what we do on Yom Kippur or what the Jews do. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, the high holiest day in all of Israelidom. Um... He's talking about the Kaden Godol. The Kohen Godol is the high priest. He enters into the Mishkan, which is located in the center of camp, wherever the tribes dwelled in the desert. He went alone, deeper into the holy of Holies, the Kadesh Ha Kadeshim, which is in the center of the Mishkan. Therefore, there in the center of the center of the community, one day, each year, this one designated person called on the ineffable name of God. Today, we have no high priest and no holy of holies. We are decentralized, and the only center now available is the one found within each of us. Therefore, in Yom Kippur, it is to the center of our beings we must go to talk to God, to call upon God for the sake of self-renewal and betterment. Now, I think that really only works if you're not considering what you're saying. Where is this disconnect from God coming from? from the center of yourself. You know that you are sinful. You know that you're broken. And you want to have this nearness to God. The word for in, in Hebrew for a sacrifice, korbanot, it comes from the same root word as to draw near. So for an Israeli, for a Hebrew, they want to draw near to God, but they can't offer sacrifices. And so they go to themselves inside the center of themselves where the brokenness comes from. Something's out of whack here. Now think with me, if you would, back to the first century of Hebrews when they're just told, Jesus is all you need. He's it. Okay, Jesus wasn't a Levite. Um, I get that he's a Judah descendant member, so he can be king. I get that. That's cool. And God talks through prophets. He just picks them kind of at random, so I guess he could be a prophet. But the priest, not buying it. He's not a Levite. Not a son of Aaron. So, how do you get around that? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question, and we're going to dig into that tonight. Read with me, if you would, or I'll, I'll read. You guys can listen along. We're going to read in Hebrews six, beginning in verse nineteen, and we're going to unpack from there all the way to eight three, give or take. Pastor Rob said that I could have about two and a half hours. Is that what you guys usually run? <laughs> okay, good. Um, Hebrews six nineteen. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, without having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction is this, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, mortal men received tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives." Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For we, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pause there for a second. He, the writer of Hebrews is addressing this guy, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Melchizedek all has a wonderful three verses in the Old Testament. So, you think, what is he doing? If you go back to Genesis 14, there he, or he's talking about how Uh, Abraham, like he said, had gone out to rescue Lot. And as he's going back through with the spoils of the kings that he despoiled to take care of Lot, all of a sudden, he meets this guy, Melchizedek, we told you, he's the king of Salem, the king of priests, the priest of the most high God, and he gives him a tithe. And then he goes on his way. And that is where this guy draws this wonderful analogy of the priest that Jesus is. And you're thinking, so what? (laughs) I don't get what you're doing, man. Well, in Psalm 110, David references him him again, and the writer of Hebrews will get to that, but he says in Psalm 110, now I've made you, God says, it's the same psalm where Jesus says later on, the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for you. He promises that the same person he's talking to, my Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now how far after this encounter with Abraham that we have written about in Genesis is this one verse in Psalm 110, a good couple hundred years. There's a thread that God's weaving throughout the Bible to lead us to understand the order of the priesthood that Jesus now enjoys. Think about that for a second. People tell you that the Old Testament is just a, or the Bible is just a collection of stories. Well, how wonderful of a storyteller do you have to be to weave in this one guy on one page of the Old Testament, and then a hundred years reference him again in a prophecy that really doesn't make any sense until you get to Jesus. That's pretty awesome. A little bit more about King of Salem. Salem is the same place that we get Jerusalem. The Jebusites occupied Salem, and they get shortened to Jeru slash Jebu, and you see in um, Psalm 76, Joshua 10, Joshua 18, 1 Kings 11, that Salem really is Jerusalem. So the king of Salem that Abraham's giving tithes to is the king of the same place where Jesus later goes in and offers himself as a sacrifice. Also in king, 1 Kings 11, it's interesting to know that God says he chose Jerusalem out of all the tribes of Israel. So there's something special about this city, something special about its ruler, something special about what happens in this city for God. So why does he go on about the fact that Abraham gave him a tithe and was blessed by this guy? Well, think about what the tithe means. It's I'm confessing support for what this is. I'm blessing, I'm giving what I have to show that this is what God has ordained. We have the priests who receive tithes because they're set up as the administrators of the household of God. And they're dependent on the support of the people of God to give them the tithe so that they can just do God's priestly task. So what is Abraham giving a tithe to this guy who's just all of a sudden popping out of nowhere? Well, he's saying, I recognize that God has put his priesthood on you, and I'm supporting that. I see that in you, and I'm, administ- I'm confessing that. And it wasn't just like Abraham is just some dude giving this guy a tithe out of nowhere. Abraham, like he says, was the one who received the promises, to be a little bit um, vernacular. Abraham was the daddy of them all for the Israelis. He was the one who was the father of the father of the fathers for the entire nation. There's no higher dad in all of the Hebrew culture than Abraham. Not even Moses, who was the greatest prophet. Abraham was one who received the promises, and he's acknowledging and saying, you have something higher. Not just that I received the covenants, but you are a priest of the Most High God. I confess that. So this guy, Melchizedek, he's a real character of a real place, and we don't have his genealogy. Well, that's kind of a big deal for, his, for the Hebrews. Genealogy was everything. You couldn't prove that you were a priest if you didn't have your genealogy. You see that in Ezra and Nehemiah when they have this group of priests who come back after the Babylonian exile and say, we, we think that we're Coen's, you know, but we, we've told that, so... Uh, we want to minister in the temple. We kind of think it's a good idea. And Nehemiah looks through and says, I don't see in the register. You can't prove your genealogy, so you're not really priests to me. Not really priests to God. So this guy was a priest not based on his genealogy, but simply because of his declaration. By God, you are a priest of me. And then he blesses Abraham. So he's what they, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the lesser receives blessing from the greater. It's like when, as a parent, I see now, I give Judah something great. I clean him. I bathe him. I give him a little thing to suck on. And he gives me smiles, and the smiles bless me, but they're not as the same as me blessing him with care and protection and taking care of. In a position, I'm greater than him. I'm bestowing something that he can't convey back to me upon him. So that's what this guy in Elkizadek is doing. If we go on, We were in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke concerning nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident that if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the beginning of a better hope, the bringing of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. You remember that this this whole passage is about how we draw near to God, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that this old system never satisfied completely. It's a foretelling of Christ because it could never do what we really could want to do. We could never draw perfectly near to God because. Only this one guy got to go in and speak the name of God once a year. And even then, every time we sinned, we sacrificed. Every time we thought we sinned, we sacrificed. Every time we touched something we think might have been unclean, he sacrificed. You get what I'm saying? There's a lot of sacrificing going on. And it's all for the sake of this immediate connection to God for a time being mediated through somebody else. But it's never perfect because you always have to do it again. What he's drawing there is saying, look, there was a priest before who's outside this whole system, who comes from God, is appointed by God, and who offers a perfect sacrifice. There's something coming that's referenced in this old system, that's foreshadowed, that's in Jesus. I, I want you to think a little bit more about that old ten, the old system. There is, Every priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. So they were themselves imperfect. Every priest got tired and stopped offering sacrifices at some point. They got replaced by somebody else, or they died, got replaced by somebody else. There was even no foreigner could enter the sanctuary. You see that in Ezekiel 44. In 1 Kings 12, we see that the sin of the first great evil king of Israel, Jeroboam. One of his sins was not just that he set up false altars, but that he made anybody a priest. It says that he made people who were priests who were not of the tribe of Aaron or not of the descendants of Aaron not of the tribe of Levi. We also see that God's very particular about where you offer sacrifices. Um, So there's only this one place we can offer sacrifices in this very particular way. And it's never quite working. There's some prophe- prophecies about what's going to happen that the Israelis just may not have got their heads around. Because they, they can't see it. Because Jesus wasn't the, poli- the political leader they were thinking. In Jeremiah 23, 33, I'll read it to you. Jeremiah is talking about this righteous branch that would come. And the Jews believe this would be a political ruler. In Jeremiah twenty-three, five, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So there's this branch coming, there's going to be a leader. We see in Zechariah nine, or Zechariah six, that's when they've come back from the Babylonian exile, and there's this great high priest, Jeshua. Jeshua is raised up and he's Got some sin that's confessed, and he's made righteous, and he's declared in Zechariah 6. Zechariah is told, hey, look, I want you to put a crown on him. He's the great high priest, member. He's a Levite. He's getting a crown put on his head. In verse 12, Uh, Verse 11, take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So we have the system itself that says something greater is coming. We have this prophecy that doesn't make any sense because it's the priest getting a crown. We know that the crown comes through David. Why is a priest getting a crown? Well, it's obvious that Joshua, Joshua, the high priest, is not really the branch that is being foreshadowed, but there is a connection coming between someone who's going to be this branch, this righteous king, who is also a great high priest. That's obviously what we see now in Jesus There's a reason why we're going through all this history. I want you to understand the system that was in place and why this would be such a conundrum for the Jews in the first century. They would have seen Jesus as someone who doesn't rightfully offer sacrifices. So he needs somebody else to intercede for him. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that, no, Jesus needs nobody else. Jesus is an order. He's a priest after a different order, after a different system than what you've seen. Let's continue on in verse verse 20. For inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath, but he was with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And this is the main point of the things we're saying in chapter 8. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So what's going on here? He says there are many priests, and yet Jesus is the one. There are many priests because they died, and yet Jesus lives forever. There are many sacrifices that saved incompletely, but Jesus can intercede and offer and save to the uttermost. Therefore, it's fitting that we have such a high priest. See, Jesus was not only foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but completely satisfied that old law. These old sacrifices pointed to the need that we have an imperfect thing being offered by an imperfect man that can never Fully unify us with God and give us unity with Him. Jesus lived a perfect life under that system, yet not part of it. See, with the old priests, if they touched something unclean, what one? They unclean, they became, they became unclean. With Jesus, you have Him reaching out and touching lepers, you have Him reaching out and touching someone who's lame, you have Him going in and speaking to the dead. And yet, none of that uncleanness rubs off on him because he's perfectly holy and he conquers uncleanness. And yet we also see that Jesus lives forever. So, this atonement isn't something that's based on ourselves. This old system is, uh, it was a foreshadow of Jesus and Jesus has paid it. And so, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying now, okay, so What? The so what's really, there are four big things here. First, our nearness to God isn't something that's mediated by somebody else anymore. Our nearness to God, we have access through Jesus directly. If you turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul gets into this here. He says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the same time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This nearness to God that was continued to being sought after by the old system, that was really only experienced by the one high priest once a year. Paul is saying, has been freely opened up to everyone. In uh, Ephesians 2.18, later on in that chapter, he says, through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So we don't only have nearness to God, we have direct access to God through Jesus. In Hebrews 4, the writer of that book was saying earlier that we have boldness to approach God through Jesus. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says that we have only one mediator between us, the man Jesus Christ. So this nearness to God is no longer mediated by multiple priests, but it's by Jesus alone. Second, the righteousness before that came through the law was a temporal thing, right? It lasted basically as long as you didn't sin from the last, the last offering, the last sacrifice. Now, Jesus ever lives and intercedes at the right hand of the throne of God, for us, and based on His perfect sacrifice, by having lived a perfect life, that one sacrifice for all is continually shown to God and said, "I'm interceding. I'm what you see, not their sin. Your righteousness is no longer a temporal thing. It is an eternal guarantee if you are in Christ." That's an amazing promise. Third, our worship of God is no longer an external ritual. But it's an internal reality. Before, the worship of God was dictated by these offerings and sacrifices that you would go and bring to the temple and the priests would do. In Romans 12, Paul says that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. In Psalm 50, David even foreshadowed this. He said, Our thanksgiving is an offering to God. In Psalm 141, he says, Our prayers are as incense, and the lifting of hands is like an evening sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that we do all things to the glory of God. Whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, we do that to the glory of God. In John 4, that's the, parable of the, woman, not the, parable, the story of the woman at the well. Remember what she asks? Well, we worship on this mountain, and your prophet said well, you should worship on this mountain. Where's true worship? He said you'll worship in spirit and truth. And he says, it's, it's neither one of those things. You'll worship in spirit and truth through me. So our worship is no longer an external thing, but a reality that we experience inside. Finally, the fourth thing that is the result of this is that we're now, as little Christs, as Christians, we're God's priests here on this earth. In 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, let me read that to you. Peter one who's called the rock by Jesus himself he says in verses in chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 we come to him as a living stone which was rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone on which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also, they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. See, what Hebrews is saying and what Peter is expressing there too is that this priest that was you before only for the Jews in the system of the Jews has been purified and made perfect in Jesus That has been opened up to everyone, for the Jew and Gentile alike. Now, in him, we experience this same benefit of the promise, that God has called you as little Christs to be his priests here on earth. So what does that mean? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, we're told pretty directly one of the things that this means. 2 Corinthians five, eighteen through 21. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are God's ambassadors. We're God's spokesmen. A priest, a prophet took God's word and gave it to the people. Right? He represented God to people. A priest represents people to God. He takes the cares and the sins of the people and he brings them before God and says, Lord, you deal with it. We have that ambassadorship here and now. The people you work with, the people who are your neighbors, the people you're around sitting with today, you're the ambassador for them to God. God has given you that ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is the one for whom that reconciliation is brokered, but you're the one who, bring, you're the one who brings them to that. Remember that last verse we just read in Hebrews. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, I could be going out of limb here, but I think that what he's saying, Jesus offered himself once, right? Later on in Hebrews, he says he's not being sacrificed again. What is it that Jesus is, is offering? Well, in Revelation uh, Revelation five, verse eight. We're given a picture of it. I think this is one of the coolest things. In Revelation five, verse eight, it's a picture of Jesus in the throne in heaven. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That bowl of incense, that's an offering perpetually before God of his sweet aroma, that's your prayers. You are a priesthood in God. And you offer a sacrifice to God that is your prayers. And it's a pleasing aroma to him when you plead and when you intercede and when you act as an ambassador for him here on earth. I think that that's what he's saying in Hebrews 8.3. That's what Jesus is offering to God himself is your prayers. It's powerful. It's for good reason that Pastor Rob says that our prayer service really is the most important service of the week that's when we're taking part in this priestly function. But it's not just that service. Everything you do, if it's true that worship is no longer something external, but really everything you do, every moment of every day, you have this opportunity to take part in this priestly function of offering sacrifice and intercession and pleading before God. So what now? Well, we're little Christs, right? Does your relationship with God is not dependent on your genealogy your relationship to God is not dependent on your past where you've come from your relationship to God is dependent on one thing what Jesus Christ did second we worship God all the time our hearts and our minds need to be ready for action need to be ready to see Lord what are you doing Where do you want me to intercede here and now because that's what Christ is doing daily for us. Third, your righteousness, your right standing and nearness to God isn't dependent on your sin at any one moment. Christ ever lives and pleads for you before the throne of God and he's making intercession for you based on his perfect sacrifice that your sin is not something that interrupts your relationship to God. Satan loved love for you to believe that every time you sin, you're just completely cast and separated from God. Not so. The moment you turn to Christ and look on him as your sacrifice, that reconciliation is immediately restored. It's the same thing how we were told in the Old Testament that Moses raised up this serpent in the wilderness, that whoever looked at that serpent would be saved from these snakes that were going around and biting people. It wasn't, oh, yeah, look to the serpent, and then 15 minutes later you're saved. Or look to the serpent next month, it'll be good. Or look to the serpent and then offer a sacrifice yourself and then you'll be good. Look to the serpent and those snakes can't hurt you. Finally, be in prayer. In all times, in all things, for all people, we have this ministry of reconciliation. There's a part where um, in First Timothy, I think this is why Paul says that. He requests that for all believers, we lift up requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for all men, especially those who are in leadership. God looks to his people to be his ambassadors here on earth. It's not the the political rulers that we see going on in the world. God has given you a special ministry and a special responsibility as his people here and now to bring that ministry of reconciliation here on the earth. God's kingdom comes through us on this earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a perfect priest for us. That your ministry to us wasn't dependent on a genealogy that really couldn't be fixed, that you couldn't be both from the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. Or that your covenants are sure, though, that you made a way for your promises to be true, if, even if we didn't see it. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who doesn't have this covering of your perfect sacrifice on their behalf, Lord, would you speak to their heart here and now? Would you draw them to where they could feel your presence, tugging on their heart and say, let me in. Let me be your priest. Let me be your one access point to God. God, I pray for their hearts that you'd come in. Lord, thank you for your people who are here gathered in your name tonight to learn more about you. I pray they'd be encouraged to see that you are completely sufficient, that our relationship to you isn't dependent on external rituals and sacrifices, God, that we don't need another priest to bring you near to us. But you yourself brought us near to you. Or cause us to go out from here tonight to be your ambassadors, to be your priests and your interlocutors, the ones who speak on your behalf here in this world right now. We love you, God, and thank you so much for loving us the way you did and the way you do and the way you always will. We praise you, Lord, and offer our lives, as Paul said, as a living sacrifice, that everything we do, God, will be an act of worship to you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen.
1: For the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for. Satan tempts me. With Christ on high, with Christ my Savior.
2: There's nothing apart from you that we can do. Father, we are so humbled, Lord, to know that the God of the universe loved us so much to be our mediator, to be uh, to send your son, Lord, to be our mediator, to make intercession for us so that we're at peace with you tonight lord we just we just say hallelujah to that father you are a great god you love us so for lord we're not looking for another mm-hmm. we already know who he is lord we just sing his name Jesus Jesus and we we love you lord and we are grateful for for your word which is faithful to proclaim the, the truth of who you are lord um Thank you for your Holy Spirit to be with us throughout the day. Even through this evening, Lord, I pray for those that maybe have just uh, can't turn their minds off at, at night, Lord. I pray that you would fill them with rest. Lord, may they just consider who you are and just set the things that uh, are um, perhaps it's just causing them the distraction. Father, just make your presence known. Lord, we we thank you for this evening we thank you for the blessing that we now can share in fellowship together we give you and yield this evening uh, once again to you in Jesus name amen. we all said amen, amen. we're early